0: Every so often in our lives, we find ourselves standing at a crossroads where we're forced to make a decision. And the decision that we make in that moment often affects the rest of our lives. I remember the first time that I knew that I was standing at a crossroads. It probably wasn't the first time that I was, but it's the first time that I knew that I was. It was when I was a senior in high school and it had to do with a high school party and some things that I was invited to partake in. And I just knew in that particular moment that if I went one direction, it would affect my life for the rest of my life, and it would lead me down a path that I didn't want to go. And so I was, I was forced to choose. Do I, do I go with what I was invited to do? Do I go with where my friends had invited me to go? Or do I leave? And I chose to leave. And looking back, I, I don't know how I knew in that moment that making that decision was going to affect me as profoundly as it would have, but I knew that it would. I don't need to get into all of the specific details. You probably have your own version of a crossroads story at some time in your life where you knew that the decision that you made in that moment could have profound effects for the rest of your life. Uh, it can be as simple as deciding where we go to college, right? Where we go to college can uh, affect the rest of our life. It can be as simple as deciding a major or where we, if we decide to relocate for a first job, or it can be as major as um, deciding who we're going to marry and spend the rest of our life with, or whether we're going to have a child or another child, these are decisions that we make these decisions and the, the effects of those decisions can last for years and years and a lifetime to come. On a negative sense, you probably uh, you know people who decided to make decisions that affected their life in a negative direction. They decided to hang out with that group of people or to uh, spend time with that particular person or to engage in that particular activity and the consequences of that decision are still with them to this very day. Every once in a while, we find ourselves facing these decision points, and we have to decide what are we going to decide at this crossroads, and how is this going to affect us for the rest of our life? Well, this morning, we're gathered here together on Easter Sunday as we celebrate and uh, recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave nearly 2,000 years ago, and I believe that Easter presents each of us with the greatest decision point we will ever face in our entire life. If what happened, if, if the story of Easter is just a story, if it's just a myth, if it's just a fable, if, if it was just a nice story to sort of perpetuate the teachings of Jesus and it didn't actually happen 2,000 years ago, then it doesn't really make that big a difference. But if Easter really happened, if the story that we tell on Easter morning is a true story, if Jesus really got up from the grave uh, Two thousand years ago, then the effects of what we do with that can last not only for our entire life, but for all of eternity. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him. He's the author of uh, lots and lots of books, uh, popularly the Chronicles of Narnia and all of those. Uh, He, for most of his life, uh, his adolescent life and young adult, he was an atheist. Uh, And then as he began to read and study and consider, over time he began to change. He became became a theist, and then he became a Christian. Uh, After he became a Christian, he had this to say. He says, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. But if true is of infinite importance, the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I think C.S. Lewis was right. He came to this understanding that, that there's no middle ground when it comes to Christianity. If what happens, particularly at the story of Easter, because we believe that uh, Christianity hinges on the resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus is the hinge point in Christianity, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is, is of no importance whatsoever. But if it did, it is of infinite importance. There's really no middle ground. The Apostle Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, had this to say in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is what? Useless. And so is your faith. In other words, if Christ wasn't raised, if Easter is just a myth, if it's just a story, a nice fable, then I'm wasting my time and so are you. That's what what Paul has to say. Paul, by the way, wasn't always a Christian. Paul began his career as a Jewish Pharisee. He was so zealous for the Jewish religion that any talk of the resurrected Jesus made him so angry that he devoted his life to tracking down Christians and imprisoning them and killing them. He tells us in his own words that he was so zealous for for Judaism that he would go to where the Christians were meeting. He believed that Christians were perverting Judaism to such a degree that he actually had Christians imprisoned and executed. And then at some point, something happened in his life where he did a complete 180 degree turn. He went from being the biggest persecutor of the church to its greatest defender. And he ended up being the one who, who wrote over half of the New Testament. We still quote his works today. I believe that Paul's conversion, actually, is one of the greatest evidences for the reality of the resurrection that we have. We we see Paul at at one point of his life, and no no scholar disputes this. This is historically verifiable that that he was a, a persecuting Pharisee, a Christian persecuting Pharisee. And then something happened in his life, and he tells us he encountered the risen Jesus face to face. And after that moment, his life was never the same. He decided to follow Jesus, and he became, he went from being Christianity's greatest persecutor to its greatest defender. So this morning, I'm going to work really hard to to, to present the evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality. I absolutely have an agenda. In case you were wondering, do I have an agenda? I have an agenda this morning. My agenda is to is to bring you to a point of decision regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to I demonstrate to the best of my ability that the, histori- that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical reality, that it really happened, and then I'm going to give you the ball, and you get to decide what you're going to do with that. So we're going to look at evidence from lots of different angles. I'm going to present evidence from several different angles. Uh, and at the end, I'm going to wrap it all up together and show you why I believe this means that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical reality. We're going to start with uh, a letter from Paul, the same letter. Uh, it's one of the earliest letters that we have. The letter itself dates to about 54 A.D. This is less than 25 uh, years after Jesus was crucified. But some of the content in there, scholars have told us that some of the content in this letter is, dates to less than three years after Jesus was crucified. This is what he says uh, earlier in this uh, letter. He says, For what I received... For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, when Paul converted, he met with the leaders of the church, and they they passed on to him what was most important. And then he then passed that on to the churches that he planted. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's number one. Number two, that he was buried... Number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And we just saw later on in this same letter, he says, if Christ wasn't raised, our preaching is useless and your faith is also. So Paul says, most important about Christianity, Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and then he was physically raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, he he presents some proof. He appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter's Greek name. Uh, he, He appeared to Peter. Uh, And then to the twelve, Paul goes on to say, after that, after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now why would Paul say this? Why would Paul say that there were 500, more than 500 witnesses who saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion if he didn't have the evidence to back that up, right? Why would Paul say, in other words, Paul is issuing a challenge to his readers. He's saying, you don't believe me? Go to Jerusalem. There are 500 men and women who saw him. In other words, you don't say something like this if you don't have the evidence to back it up, right? This is, he's issuing a challenge. He's saying, I've got the evidence to back this up. There, Jesus was raised from the dead, and I've got 500 people who can verify it. So we're talking about, you know, some some good witnesses, some good evidence here. Then he goes on. Then he appeared to James. Now, if you didn't know this, James is actually the brother of Jesus. James is actually the brother of Jesus. And, And to quote one of my favorite preachers, what would it take to convince you that your brother was the son of God? Right? My sister is in the audience today, and she would probably tell you that she likes me just fine, but for her to be convinced that I was actually the son of God, something miraculous would have to happen, right? We know from the gospel stories that uh, James James sort of doubted Jesus uh, while he was alive the first time. But then something happened that actually convinced James that his brother had become the son of God. And what convinced him was that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. So if your brother died, and then came back from the dead, you would sort of believe whatever it was that your brother said. You may have doubted him all along, he may have seemed crazy all along, but when he predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off, you know, we sort of just go with people who can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off. James actually became one of the prominent leaders in the early church. Uh, What convinced James? I believe that the conversion of James itself is, is... some of the strongest evidence that the resurrection actually happened, because you know what it would take to convince you that your sibling was the son of God, right? I know some of you have siblings, and you've talked about them before, so you know what it would take. It would take something spectacular, something miraculous, something no less than resurrection. Then Paul tells us, then he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so he talks about his own conversion experience, where he went from being a persecutor of the church to the church's greatest defender. Jesus Christ appeared in the flesh to Paul. We know that this is true. We know that Paul had a a sudden change in life. He tells us what it was. We get to choose if we want to believe him or not. So this is the evidence of Paul, the evidence of some of the appearances that he tells us about. and He says he has the the witnesses to back it up. He says, if you you don't believe me, you can verify. I've got the sources to back it up. Now we're going to go to some of the uh, evidence in the gospel stories themselves. You may be familiar with this. There are four gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We believe that these contain eyewitness accounts of the life teachings of Jesus, of his crucifixion, of his resurrection. So we're going to start with... Uh, Mark. Mark, we believe, was uh, a companion of Peter. We're told that he traveled around with Peter, that he wrote down Peter's life story. Now, Peter was one of Jesus's followers. He was with Jesus during his ministry. He he saw Jesus after the resurrection, and so in the gospel of Mark, we have the evidence from Peter himself, who was an eyewitness. Uh, So here's what Mark tells us, beginning with the burial of Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 42, but it was preparation day, That is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So we have this man named Joseph, he's a prominent person uh, in the community, uh, he was a secret follower of Jesus, he was a part of the religious leadership body, but he secretly believed in Jesus. He wants to give Jesus a proper burial before the Sabbath. The Sabbath is coming, you're not supposed to um, do work on the Sabbath, so he goes to Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of Judea at the time, the Roman governor at the time, he goes to Pilate, he asks for the body of Jesus so that he can give Jesus a proper burial. Uh, Mark tells us this, he says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. In other words, Pilate was surprised that Jesus' death happened so quickly. And if you read some of the medical journals that have been written about this, the suffering that Jesus went through would have, would have almost certainly killed him uh, in, in a pretty quick period of time. With the, with the beatings and the whippings and, and the crucifixion, these, these Roman soldiers were, were professional killers. So Pilate was actually surprised to hear how quickly Jesus had died. Uh, so Pilate just wants to verify, he wants to make sure, So he summons the centurion. A centurion is a leader of a hundred soldiers. He was overseeing the crucifixions that day. He summons the centurion and he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Now this is significant because there are groups of people out there who believe that the resurrection is sort of a hoax, that Jesus uh, actually survived the crucifixion. This is what the Muslims teach. This is what some skeptics believe, that Jesus actually survived the crucifixion. Um, Mark includes this to say this, Jesus did not survive. And for people who bring that up, uh, we illustrate that the Romans were professional killers. They crucified thousands and thousands and thousands of people. They knew what they were doing. Um, You can read it, there are medical doctors who have written about all of the conditions and they demonstrate there's no way that Jesus would have survived the crucifixion. That's what Mark wants us to know here. There's no way that Jesus actually would have survived this. This wasn't a hoax where he sort of survived and then he got better and so they believed he raised from the dead. Jesus actually died on the cross on that Good Friday. So this is what uh, Mark tells us about Peter. Now we're going to shift lenses a little bit. We're going to look at Luke's account. Now, I would encourage you to go back after this, read, read the resurrection story in all four gospels. What you're going to see is that all four gospels tell basically the exact same story. All of the major details are there. There are a little differences in each one. Um, they, they seem to maybe disagree on, on certain small details. Uh, forensic experts actually tell us that the, the, the minor disagreements are actually proof of the authenticity of the gospels. That if you have four witnesses to an event, that if they all tell the exact same story and get every detail exactly right, that's evidence that they um, were in collusion, uh, in collaboration, that they were, there's a conspiracy. But if they, if they get the main details right and they, and they differ on some of the smaller details, that's actually evidence for their authenticity. So we're going to switch over to Luke's account. Luke was a, a Roman physician, a, a Gentile physician. He tells us that he investigated all of the claims about Jesus very carefully, and he set out to write an orderly account so that those reading could know for certain that what they were reading about Jesus was true. Uh, Luke tells us there are lots of people who are writing lots of stuff about Jesus, so I went out and I investigated it myself, Luke says, so that I could know for certain, so that you could know for certain that these particular things are true. Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. This is what Luke tells us happens next after Joseph got the body. Luke tells us that uh, Joseph took it down, he took the body down, wrapped it in linen cloth, uh, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. So it seems like uh, Joseph is sort of in a hurry. He, he wraps Jesus up, he places him in the tomb. This was the first step in a two-step Jewish burial system. What they would do is they would take the dead bodies of Jews, they would lay them in an open tomb... For about a year, while the, uh, the soft tissue decomposed and decayed, and then after about a year, when there was nothing but bones left, they would gather up the bones, and they would put them in what's called an ossuary, a bone box, and they would keep that um, box of bones with the bones of the other family members. They would have sort of family tombs. So this is, uh, we know this is true historically. This is how they treated bodies of, of dead Jews. This is what Pilate is doing with the body of Jesus. He wraps it up. He lays it in a tomb. Uh, And then it's about the Sabbath day. He's trying to get it done before the Sabbath starts. Luke adds some more detail here. He tells us, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. Uh, The ladies in the audience probably get this. If you watch a guy do something, you realize you probably have to go back and do it right afterwards, right? Now that, so, you know, they, they see what's going on in this particular situation. Um, that's just a joke, by the way. This, is, this was normal. People, people would visit, um, it, it was customary for, for people to visit the, the tomb of somebody who had died for several days. They would anoint the body with oils when they went. It would help with the, you know, the odor of decomposition. Um, so the, the women see where he's laid and they go home because they, they want to visit, um, they want to continue the embalming process. But the next day is the Sabbath. Um, so Luke tells us they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So this is what we believe to be Saturday. They, they rested on Saturday. They weren't supposed to work. So all Saturday, Jesus is laying in the tomb. And then Luke tells us, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, after the Sabbath, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They came upon an empty tomb. They came upon an empty tomb. Now, we believe that this is historically reliable, and the reason we believe this is because it was women who found the tomb first. I'm going to get into this in a little bit more, uh, in a little bit. In that culture, I'm not saying it was right, it wasn't right, but in that culture, women were not considered to be credible witnesses. So if you wanted to make up a story about an empty tomb, you wouldn't make it up with women being the first ones to find it, because that hurts your case. In that culture, women weren't credible witnesses, and you're going to see that in just a little bit. But what I want to point out here, again, to quote one of my favorite preachers, nobody expected no body, right? They went to the tomb expecting to find a body. They brought spices to the tomb expecting to find a body. Nobody expected nobody. Nobody was anticipating that Jesus wasn't going to be there. Luke goes on to tell us, While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men asked them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen. And we've heard this story enough that it doesn't really catch us by surprise. In that particular culture, in that day, nobody expected dead people to get up. Like, we... We don't expect dead people to get up, but we think that you know back then, they, that was just you know they sort of believed that. Back, resurrection back then was just as weird to them as it was to us. For these women, this would have been the most shocking thing that they ever heard. Nobody expected people to get up from the dead. They had lots of different ideas about maybe what afterlife looked like. Bodily resurrection was not one of them. Jews believed that all people would be resurrected in the future, but nobody in the middle of time like this, this would have caught everybody by surprise. The, the two men go on to remind them, the women who are there. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. So Jesus had told them this. He told them several times, but you know, they, it was such a unique idea. they didn't believe Jesus, they, they forgot it. They, they, just, they didn't realize what Jesus was saying. They were so caught up in everything, they didn't read it. Then they remembered His commandments, "Oh, I remember him. That's what this means." So they're finally starting to put it together. So what do they do next? Luke tells us, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but what? They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense, right? For some of you, this probably still sounds like nonsense, but it, it, in that culture, especially for, for the women to come and say this, they didn't believe women anyway, and there's some really terrible quotes out there from some religious leaders about why you're not supposed to believe women, and I'm not saying it's right, but it's, it's what the culture was. And so again, this, this isn't something you make up. If you're making up a story about a resurrected savior, you don't put women at the tomb first. You don't make women the first witnesses of the empty tomb because they're not believable. It hurts the case. And we can see that. They didn't believe them. Uh, Actually, Luke goes on to tell us that Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He didn't believe the women. He had to go check it out for himself. Um, Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So, So far, we have an empty tomb, an empty tomb that we believe is historically verifiable. And it's verifiable for several different reasons. We have several different witnesses that attest to the empty tomb. They all tell the same story, that it's the women who go, the women who find the empty tomb, they go back and they tell others. Um, And so we have an empty tomb. Now, an empty tomb in and of itself doesn't prove resurrection. An empty tomb in and of itself doesn't prove resurrection. Somebody could have stolen the body, right? That happened all of the time. There were grave robbers. Somebody could have gone in and stolen the body. The disciples themselves could have stolen the body if they wanted to make up the story. But again, if they wanted to make up the story, they don't put women at the tomb first. That doesn't make sense. It hurts their case. So we have the empty tomb. And now we're going to add something to the empty tomb that, when taken together, leads us to the conclusion that A real bodily resurrection is the only historical explanation that makes sense of all of the data. And so to to get there, we're going to move over to John's Gospel. We've looked at Mark, we've looked at Luke, now we're going to look at John. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was with Jesus. He was there. He witnessed all of this stuff happening. He's writing at the end of his life, probably realizing that he's coming to the end of his life, probably realizes that he needs to to leave a legacy behind so that others can know what he experienced. Uh, He writes in the third person, because that's how biographies of the day went. Here's what, uh, here's what John tells us. On the evening of that first day of the week, so again, this is the same day, John tells us, that night uh, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Don't, don't miss this. The disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid. Well, why were they afraid? Because they had just seen their leader get crucified as a criminal and they sort of knew that you know what happens to the leader often happens to the followers and they they didn't want to be anywhere near what was going on so they locked the doors they hid they didn't want to end up crucified just like jesus so they're they're scared and they're hiding don't lose sight of this while they're scared and they're hiding jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you now again Try to imagine how surprising this must have been to them, for Jesus to appear in their midst and say, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He was, he was pierced through the hands with the nails. They had stuck him in the side with a spear. He showed them his hands and his side. Um, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. In other words, the reason he showed them his hands and his side was to demonstrate he wasn't just a spirit. He was actually there in physical bodily form. Uh, That the the same body that had been crucified was now raised up. And the reason this is important is because uh, people had visions of departed ones all of the time. That wasn't uncommon. For a, for a, a dead person to appear in some way, that happens all of the time. I met with a woman in the hospital recently who told me that she had a vision of her sister who had recently passed away. She believed she saw her sister. This was very common. Um, so the reason that John includes this, the, the information about the hands on the side was to demonstrate this wasn't just a vision of a spirit, of, of Jesus', you know, they weren't having um, just some hallucination. They actually saw his physical body that had been raised up. More on that later. Um, John goes on to tell us another story. He says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, there are some skeptics out there who try to say that the, the, the resurrection appearances were just hallucinations, that these people just hallucinated Jesus. They were, they were so grieved over the loss of their leader, over the loss of their uh, teacher, that they, they just, you know, in their grief, they, they envisioned him. But, but you don't eat breakfast with a vision, okay? Visions don't eat breakfast on the beach, so that's why Jesus includes it. This is, this is evidence that there was a physical body. Jesus was physically there. He invited them to have breakfast. And again, this is the third time. So we, we, we might excuse you know, one appearance to a single person as a hallucination. But if we have multiple appearances to multiple people at the same time, we're talking about mass-level psychosis here. If we're, if we're talking about multiple people who are experiencing multiple visions at the same time. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so that's what John tells us. John tells us about these, uh, these appearances of Jesus. Now, we have the empty tomb, and then we have the appearances. Either one of these independently don't prove the resurrection. But when you put them together, when you have an empty tomb and appearances, the only explanation that makes sense is that Jesus was literally, physically raised from the dead. So now we're going to move on to something else. We're going to move to the book of Acts. The book of Acts was also written by Luke, that same... Uh, gentile physician, the book of Acts tells the story of the early church, how the church was born and how it began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. This is what Luke tells us in Acts. After his suffering, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now again, Luke didn't begin as a Christian He was a Gentile physician. At some point, he came to faith in Christ. He says that he investigated all of these things very carefully. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command: Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy, Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then, ten days later, so Jesus was with them for forty days, then ten days later, that makes a period of fifty days. Now remember, where were the disciples forty days earlier? They were hidden behind locked doors like scared little kids, right? They were hidden behind locked doors because they were afraid. Now, 40 plus 10, 50 days later, Peter and the 11 are standing in the Jerusalem temple on one of their biggest holidays, and Peter gets up and he preaches this message. The same Peter who was hiding behind locked doors with fear just 50 days earlier, Peter says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles wonders and signs, which he did among you through him as you yourselves know. In other words, they all knew that Jesus was real, that Jesus existed, that he had done miracles. Um, He was just telling them what they already knew. But he goes on to say, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Again, this was something everybody knew. Everybody knew that this... Jewish teacher had been crucified by the Romans. He's telling them what they already knew. But then he he goes on to something else. He says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's pretty bold. For somebody who was just 50 days earlier, hiding behind locked doors in fear, now standing in the middle of the temple, preaching the sermon on one of their most popular holidays, telling these same people, you killed him and God raised him. That's some boldness. Something happened inside of Peter. Something changed inside of Peter to take him from this, this scared person who's hiding to now standing and boldly proclaiming this. And he doesn't stop there. Uh, he gets, he gets even, even more bold. He says, but God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He's saying, he's standing there with the eleven, so there's twelve of them standing together saying, we have all seen him. You know who he was, you saw the miracles he did, you know he was crucified, Well, we're here to tell you, we saw him come back from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. So what, they all ask, therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In other words, we don't use those terms very often. God has made Jesus king by resurrecting him from the dead. God has made Jesus king by resurrecting him from the dead. So all the people say, oh no, what do we do? They understood the implications of this. They knew that if this was true, that if God had really raised Jesus from the dead, that this was the most significant thing that had ever happened in history. They said, what do we do? And here's what Peter tells them. Repent. Repent. That just means change your mind. Turn from your ways. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the same Peter who 50 days ago was afraid behind locked doors. Now, 50 days later, is standing in the middle of the temple, looking around at all of these people who were involved in the crucifixion and he says this, you killed him, God raised him, we saw him, now say you're sorry. Right? That's, that's a pretty big change. Something happened. Now, most, even skeptics understand that something happened. They understand that Peter and the 11 actually believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They actually believed this. There's no disputing that, right? All of these apostles, Peter and the others, with the exception of John, all ended up dying for this belief, dying for their belief that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, here's just something to consider. People don't generally die for something that they know is a lie. Now, people will die for a lie, but they don't believe it's a lie. People will die for something that they believe to be true. They believed that they saw Jesus. This is why the the explanation that they stole the body and made this up doesn't make any sense. They they wouldn't make this up. They, they They wouldn't steal the body and make this up. They believed that when the Messiah died, their movement died with them. Something happened. They experienced something. And then what happened the next is uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Christianity spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire. Over the next century, next couple hundred years, Christianity spread like wildfire. Like nothing they had ever really seen at that time. It spread through the country. What is the explanation? How did this happen? There were lots of other messiahs, people thought that were messiahs, that were crucified by the Romans. None of these other movements ever turned into anything. When the the leader died, the movements always died with them. Something happened, something was different with Christianity. So I want to recap the evidence for you. We have the empty tomb, we have the post resurrection appearances. We have the transformation of the disciples. We have the conversion of James, the brother of Jesus. We have the conversion of Paul, the Christian persecuting Pharisee. And we have the spread of Christianity. All of these things all point to one thing. I'd like to quote the world-renowned scholar, New Testament scholar and historian, N.T. Wright. This is how he describes it. Though admitting it involves accepting a challenge at the level of worldview at the level of worldview itself, the best historical explanation for all of these phenomena is that Jesus was indeed bodily raised from the dead. Now, taken individually, each of these different things maybe could be explained away, but when you look at it as a whole, the only explanation that makes historical sense is that Jesus was actually raised from the dead on the third day, that he got up bodily from that tomb and was raised from the dead. That's the only thing that makes actual historical sense without doing all sorts of mental gymnastics. Now, NT Wright is correct when this challenges us at the level of our worldview because we typically don't believe that people get up from the dead, right? We, you know, we typically understand that when somebody dies, we don't expect that person to then get up 3 days later. We are no different than people in the first century. This is as much a challenge for our worldview today as it was for them back then. But all of the evidence back then, as well as now, points to this is what actually happened. So now, I I want to address the question that's on all of your minds, the question that you're asking, so what? So what? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. If this is true. If this is true, it means seven things. Number one, if Jesus really got up from the dead, it means that God exists. If Jesus was really raised from the dead, it means that God exists. And it means that everything that Jesus said about God was true, right? Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection. Everything that Jesus taught about God was true because he was raised from the dead. So if Jesus was raised from the dead, it means that God exists. Number two, it means that God cares, This means that God cares, that God cared enough about what was going on in the world to send his only son into the world, right? This is what John tells us, that that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This means that God cares. The resurrection means that God cares about the world in general and about you specifically, which leads me to number three. It means that you matter. If this is true, it means that you matter to God, that you are not just some cosmic accident in all life, and that with the, you know, you're just here by chance, by accident, means that you in your life matter to God. If the resurrection is true, then you matter. Number four, if the resurrection is true, it means the world matters. It means that God loved the world, and that means that God cares. Uh, you know, we, we see that Jesus teaches about justice. That Jesus teaches about caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan and treating people correctly and showing love. It means that all of that, that God cares about the world. And he cares about justice. That this, this is good news for us. It means that God cares about setting the world to right. And I'm gonna tell you in a minute, that means that we get to be involved in that. It means that the world matters. Number five, it means that our sin matters. It means that our sin matters. You may not like that, that S word, right? We don't, we don't like that S word. It sounds really religious, but but you know. If you're honest, you know that there's a part of you... ...that you've done things that are, that, are, that are more than just mistakes. You know that you've done things in the past that were wrong... ...and you did them on purpose. We have a word for that. That's not a, that's not a mistake. A mistake is, you know, you, you fill in the wrong bubble on a test... ...you can erase it. You know, you did it on accident. We're talking about things that are deeper. Where you know that you've done something that hurt someone else. Sin. It means that sin matters to God. The cross... Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins means that sin matters to God. His resurrection vindicates all of that. It means that our sin matters and needs to be dealt with. Number six, perhaps most importantly, it means that Jesus is king and demands our allegiance. If Jesus really got up from the dead, if God really raised Jesus from the dead, and Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that it's the resurrection that marks Jesus out as the son of God in power, as king of God, of the universe. If Jesus is king, then what do kings demand? They demand allegiance, right? If this really happened, it means that Jesus really is king, that he really demands our allegiance. Paul tells us in another place that until we we give our allegiance to Jesus, that we're living as enemies of God, and that when we declare our allegiance, when we switch sides and declare our allegiance to Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins, we receive a pardon for what we've done. But in order to get that, we need to swear allegiance to Jesus as king. Finally, number seven, if this is true, it means that there is transformed life now and eternal life later. And We believe that it's both. Christianity is not just fire insurance. It's not just, oh, believe, and then you can go to heaven and escape hell, and you can live how you want now. It means there's a transformed life now. We saw the transformation that took place in the lives of James and Peter and John and Paul. Their lives changed, and they became a part of a mission. Their lives suddenly had purpose, and they suddenly had joy, and they suddenly had peace. Their, their lives had meant something more. You can have a transformed life now. We believe that. You know, in your, in your bulletin, as a part of our mission statement, we believe the love of God and the good news about Jesus Christ have the power to transform hearts, lives, families, and communities. We've seen it happen. We believe there's transformational power because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God can raise somebody from the dead, what can't he do? What in your life is so far gone that God can't bring that back to life if he could bring Jesus back from the dead? There's transformational life now, and there's eternal life later. Jesus promises that anybody who gives him allegiance has the promise of eternal life. We know that things get bad now, and we know that uh, things hurt now, but we know that we have been promised a future, a bodily resurrection, just like Jesus, into a a new creation where there's no more sorrow, and no more pain, and no more tears. If Christianity is true, C.S. Lewis tells us, it is of infinite importance. If Jesus was really raised from the dead and all of the historical markers point to the fact that he was, then all of this is true. And that means that you are at a point of decision. What will you do with it? Will you give Jesus your allegiance? Will you join him in his mission? Will you follow him where he leads? Will you experience transformed life now and eternal life later? Will you follow Jesus where he leads? Will you give him your allegiance. If this is something that you're thinking about, if it's something that you're considering now, maybe for for the first time, something you've considered in the past, I would invite you to come back next week. We're in the middle of a series where we're looking at what it means to follow Jesus, what it really means to to be one of his disciples, to follow where he leads. So if if you're looking to take that next step, if you want to know what it means to really surrender your life to Jesus, that's what it means to give him your allegiance, then I'd invite you to come back next week. Now, I'm going to play a song here. This is uh, called Because He Lives. Uh, and during the song, if you know it, you can sing along. Uh, if something has touched your heart and you want to come forward for prayer, that you're, that's available as well. Once the song is over, I'll come back up. I'll say a, a word of prayer, and then I will send you out, true to my word, just over an hour, okay? Uh, don't let this moment pass by. Don't, if, if something struck you in your heart, don't walk out those doors without doing something about it before you leave. Join me in prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Father, we believe that you raised your Son from the dead on the third day, and we know that the implications of that are mind boggling. Father, help us to follow in his footsteps. Help us to trust. Help us to obey. Help us to know the next step to take for those who are here who may be considering. Becoming a follower of Jesus for the first time, give them grace, give them strength, help them to take that step. Let them know that you are here with them, that you love them, that you care about them, that you have a future and plans for them. Father, for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, give us more grace. Help us to live out our faith in more authentic and radical ways. Help us to never be afraid. Help us to have the boldness of Peter and James and John to to share this truth with the world. Father, help us to continue to be a community that works to see your transformation. We know that you care about the transformation of lives, both in this city and around the world. Help us to, to be agents for your change, to be representatives of your love and your goodness. Help us to work for justice and for reconciliation in all of our avenues of life. Or help us to be faithful representatives of your son everywhere we go. I pray for these things. I thank you for these people in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Happy Easter.